Amen. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John uh, chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 17, looking at what is historically called uh, the high priestly prayer. I'll be honest with you, this is one of the most studied passages in in the entirety of the Gospel of John. And so I, 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 wanna, I want you to know that on the front end because I feel uh, a certain weight uh, with this passage that I don't know that I normally have felt. And I don't know that that's a good thing. I'm not saying that in a good way about me. What, I, what, I, what I'm trying to say to you is that I, I think I feel woefully unprepared uh, to even share this passage with you this morning. Uh, the fact that Jesus would in the moments before the cross be praying for us just hits me in a really profound way. So would you uh, stand with me? And we're going to turn to John 17. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll just go 1 through 19 this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you desperate, knowing that, that whatever is wrong in the world, we can't fix it. That whatever distracts us, we can't escape it. That whatever has our attention and our affections right now, Lord, we need to turn those things over to you and allow you to renew and restore us. And so I pray that you would do that through your word to us this morning. I pray that you would make us look more and more 
like your son. Jesus, would you come by your spirit and fill us up? And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, back in the fall, uh, so just a few months ago, one of the things that our session, so if you're new to the Presbyterian Church, the session is your elders who get together and, and they, they lead the church, they shepherd the church. One of the, one of the things that they uh, told me was that I needed to be more intentional about finding weeks to be away. That was, that's what they told me. Uh, there was actually a list of things that I needed to do a better job with. The first was to find some weeks away. That was number one. The second was that I needed to be more intentional. Uh, I mean, intentional. That's not a word, y'all. Me, be more intentional by using right language, right? And then the, the second was actually be more intentional about taking my wife out on date nights, which was, yeah, right? So that was a good one. Um, the third was that I needed to more, be more intentional with finding true Sabbath rest for myself and for my family. And, and so I'm trying to do all those things. Laurie and I went on a date not too long ago, so I'm probably due for one of those again. But last Sunday, last, and you all can help hold me accountable on that, right? This is how this works. Uh, last Sunday, we took a week to go and visit with uh, one of the churches who has supported us in this work. In fact, it's the church who gave us this uh, piano. And so we went to worship with them to be fed by, the, by and through the means of grace with them in prayer and, and word. And it was such an encouraging time. You know, I got, to, I got to wrestle with the kids in the pew for a change, which was obviously fun. Um, and all of that, though, I will say this, we really missed being here at Rivercrest. And uh, we missed being in this place. We missed being with uh, our people. We miss singing and praying and hearing the word preached here with you, even though, even though we did all of those things. We did all of those things with them at, at, the, at the very lovely church with some really nice people. Uh, we just missed being here, and, and that's because we missed you. And, and I don't know that I say that enough. I don't know that I've made that clear. But man, like, like we love being here with you. I mean, we do. This is it's a whole way home. Laurie was going, man, what... I can't wait to be back next Sunday with the people at, at Rivercrest. And uh, I was so encouraged throughout the week as a number of you reached out to say that you actually missed us being here. That felt good. Um, and that, and this is the key. I want you to hear this. The key, that, the thing that I heard several times from different people this week is um, that you were praying for us. I was encouraged because you we're praying for me. And so I want you to hear this in this passage. In John 17, what we find is Jesus himself doing just that for his disciples. Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying for you. And I want to overemphasize this because it is really profound, okay? That, that, that Jesus is just moments away at this point from Gethsemane. He is just moments away from the trials before the Jewish courts under the cover of night. He is just moments away from being beaten and scourged by the Roman soldiers. He is moments away from having a crossbeam loaded onto his shoulders and being pushed through the streets of Jerusalem to just outside the city. He is moments away from lying down on that beam and having nails driven through his hands and his feet and him being lifted up so that the people there can point at him, so the people there can mock him, so the people there can laugh at him. All the while knowing he is dying for the people who are laughing at him, who are pointing at him, and who are mocking him. 
With all of that coming within just a few moments, what we're told there in verse 1 is that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he started praying for his disciples. It's that at this moment, Jesus is interceding for us. That's why this is called the high priestly prayers, because that's what the priest does. A priest intercedes for the people. When we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, we talk about Him as the Messiah. We talk about how Jesus fulfills three different offices. Jesus is, uh, we call Him both the prophet, the priest, and the king. And as our prophet, what that means is He reveals to us uh, the Word of God uh, for our salvation. That's what He does. That's His prophetic office. And as a king, he brings us under his rule and his reign, and he protects and defends us against the evil one. We even, we have, we have heard him pray that specifically, even in this prayer. But as our priest, this is what the shorter catechism says to us. It says, he executes the office of a priest and his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That's what it means to be the priest, is to intercede for the people. That's what Jesus is doing in this. He is interceding for us because, listen, even though Jesus has the cross coming for him, it's not him who's in trouble. It's us. We're the ones who are in trouble. Jesus isn't in trouble, right? He has no spot or stain. He has no guilt of sin. He has no shame that he's tempted to hide. He is perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, but but we aren't. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that you are good and need a little boost. It's not that you are a little sick and need a new prescription. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are dead in our sin and that he came to this earth that we might become alive. It's that the righteous one came to give his life for the unrighteous many. He came to redeem his people for his glory and for our good. That's who Jesus is praying for in this prayer. He says it there in verses 8 and 9. Look at that. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You see, that's what makes you one of the them that he's praying for. It's receiving and resting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And then he says, I am praying. He says it explicitly. I am praying for them. I'm praying for those people. I'm I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And his ultimate cry, the apex petition in his prayer, is for glory. He's praying for glory. That's the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. That's what the glory of God is. And there are three ways that we're going to see this in this passage. I'm going to give them to you on the front, and hopefully you'll be able to track with me as we go through here. The first is that is the glory of Jesus in his cross. The second is the glory of Jesus in his disciples. And the third is the glory of Jesus in his mission. Those are the three things. In the cross in his disciples, and in his mission. So let's look at these. Look back at verse 1 with me. Jesus says there, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We see it right there in those five words, those first five words, that the hour has come. 
Now, throughout the Gospel of John, if you've been with us, you've seen this theme that's there, the word hour. That, that word is used at this point uh, 23 different times throughout the Gospel of John. And everything before chapter 12, everything before chapter 12 was Jesus saying that the hour had not yet come, or it was him saying that uh, the hour is coming. But back in chapter 12, just after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus' final entrance into the city, it was at that point that he said, the hour has come. And to be very specific, what he said was that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Every time I read that, I hear that baboon from Lion King saying, it is time, right? It is go time. And here's the paradoxical truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that the supreme revelation of both the nature and the character of God of the plan and the purpose of God, find themselves most clearly displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes says, It's at the cross that we see his love of holiness and hatred of sin. We see his love of justice and his condemnation of sin. And we see his love for us in the vast cost that he paid for our redemption. So listen, at this point, Jesus knows that the cross is coming. Everything leading up to this moment has been like the kitchen prep, right? That's what Jesus has been doing. He's been, he's been baking the turkey. He's been getting the, uh, the rolls ready. He's got the beans and the carrots. He's got mashed potatoes and gravy. If you're, one of our, if you're in our family, he's got macaroni and cheese or something. He's got all of that stuff laid out. And at this point, it is on the table, and he is ringing the dinner bell saying, It is t- time. The table is set. The hour has come. It's here. It's time. And this opening petition in the prayer is that the Father would glorify Him as He glorifies the Father. You see, it's precisely because the time has come for the glorification that Jesus prays that the glorification would take place. It's a prayer of both reverence and obedience, recognizing that this is the plan and purpose of God from all eternity to redeem unto Himself a people for His Glory. This is what Jesus is about to accomplish at the cross. This is what he's doing. He's paying the penalty for our sin. It's what the Bible calls propitiation. If you ever hear that word, that's what it's talking about. It's the payment for our sin. Jesus is satisfying divine justice. That's the way Westminster said it, right? He's paying for your sin. He's paying for my sin. Every lustful thought, every moment of self-righteousness and greedy motivation At the cross, he is paying the penalty to satisfy divine justice against my sin. That's why the cross is both a curse and a glory. It's where we see the beautiful collision of both pure justice and holy mercy. The cross reminds us of the weight of our guilt. It shows how painful our sin is to a holy God, but also the weight and the glory of his righteousness. It's at the cross that Jesus satisfies holy wrath, the holy wrath of God against sin so that we can be free. So that we can be free. And he did that for you. He says that there in verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And make no mistake, like we all need saving. Every single one of us. 
That's why we always say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, you see. Uh, like, like your awesome and supportive parents who drug you to church every day, they did not make your salvation any easier. And listen, your abusive and neglecting parents who, who wanted nothing to do with church, they didn't, they didn't make your salvation any more difficult to accomplish. Jesus says there in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's it. That's the only way of salvation. And so, like, like being theistic, believing that there is a God, acknowledging that God exists, that doesn't save you. Saying prayers doesn't save you. Knowing the words to these creeds and these confessions that we use, singing the words to the songs and worship, that doesn't save you. It doesn't. Being nice people, recycling, you know, trying to take care of the world, it's a good thing to do. Not saying bad words, right? None of those things actually save. Now, those may be the fallout from being saved. That might be part of what happens as Jesus continues to sanctify you. That's what flows out of that. But, but they don't save. Eternal life is only found in knowing the only true God, and in knowing Jesus Christ. And we cannot know Jesus unless we know him at the cross. That's why he prays for his glory in the cross. That's the first thing, is that he wants glory in the cross because he wants us to know him at the cross. And the second is that he prays for glory in his disciples. Look back at verse 6 with me. He says there, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That means that he made it known. That's what it means to manifest something, to make it clear. It means that he has clearly revealed the name of God in his person and work. So so we see the attributes of God by looking most directly at Jesus, okay? That's, That's what the name of God is. It's him. And so how does God act? Look at Jesus. What does God care about? Look at Jesus. That's what it means to manifest his name. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and opens our blind eyes and unstops our deaf ears, it's not just a neat party trick, right? It's not an illusion. When God calls a man to come to him and live, it's an act of supernatural power. It's something we cannot accomplish. I am fairly convinced, and I've been more and more convinced of this as this week has gone on, that one of the main problems with the church today is that we expect God to operate by our rules and our limitations. Like we're okay with him giving input. We're okay with him sitting down at the table and going, man, I think you ought to do it this way. But us ultimately having the power to veto what he says and choose to go our own way. Like we're okay with that, but ultimately we just prefer to do it the way we have plans. We still prefer the illusion that we're in charge rather than the truth that he is the vine and we are the branches and that we are powerless to do anything apart from him. And so we've lost touch as a people with the miracle that is our being redeemed. And we forget that the most glorious thing that Jesus has ever done for us is not a beautiful sunset. It was not the moment the doors opened and your bride came walking forward or that you came walking forward and saw the groom, an equal party there for the wedding illustration. It's, it's not that he gave you the miracle of birth in your child. Like Those are glorious things, to be sure. 
They're incredible and hard to, and hard to even capture in, in word and thought. But there is nothing more glorious and more miraculous than what Jesus did in saving you. We forget that. We forget that. And so what ends up happening is we end up walking as people who are part of a decent organization rather than people who have been called out of the grave. We act like being saved is like getting a new job at a better company or something. Like we've finally gotten an advance, right? Like, like we get a bump in pay, a shorter commute, and probably some better long-term benefits, right? But the glory that Jesus receives in his disciples is, that, is what he said to the disciples of John the Baptist, where he said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And here's what he said. He's quoting Isaiah, actually. He says, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Listen, that's you. I mean, that's me. That's who he's talking about. We're the blind and lame. We are the leper that nobody wants to be near. We are the deaf. We are the dead. We are the poor. Like, have you forgotten that? See, it's, it's tempting in our world to begin to think that we're awesome. Because most of y'all do pretty awesome things. Some of y'all have jobs I can't even begin to explain. I don't know if that makes it good or not, but it just, it's too complicated for me to understand. It must be awesome. Some of you have done incredible things in athletics. You've done incredible things in education. You've done incredible things. And so it's tempting for us to think that we are awesome, but we have forgotten that apart from him, we were dead. We need to remember that the, that the level ground at the foot of the cross is filled with us all at our absolute worst. And that's where Jesus comes and meets us. We don't see or hear him coming because we're blind and deaf. We can't run to him because we're lame and our legs don't work. We can't imagine that he would want us because we're covered in filth and we can't afford to even have someone bring, him, bring us to him because we're the poor. That's us. And that's the glory of Jesus in his disciples, that they, that you and that I, by the miracle of his supernatural grace, are given life in him. And so if we understand that, like if we understand that like Lazarus, Jesus has beckoned us out of the grave, we can't help but tell people about that. We can't help but cry out this good news that we have been forgiven and that we have been redeemed and that we who once were blind now can see. We once were dead, but now we're alive. There's this really incredible scene uh, where Jesus is entering Jerusalem in Luke 19. And, and people are praising him there. Right? They're shouting Hosanna. And, uh, and there, it's like a big fest going on, like a parade. And Jesus is there. And, and some of the Pharisees come to him. And they, uh, some of them who were in the crowd, and they said to him, this is what they said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. That's what they want. They want Jesus to shut up his disciples. Tell them to be quiet, man. We don't need all of that happening in the streets. And, and Jesus answered them. This is what he said to the Pharisees. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's what Jesus said. He's walking into town, riding into town, and they're going, uh, you need to tell your people to be quiet. He goes, listen, if I did that, if I told them all to shut up, the rocks on the ground would themselves cry out. 
Can I tell you something? I, I think the church, and, and when I say church, I don't mean us as an organization. We did some singing today. Like we've sung some songs. We've prayed. We've done all the things. When I say the church, I mean you as people, me as part of the church, as, as, one, of the, as one of the pieces of fruit that the church has borne. We got to quit giving the stone so many opportunities to cry out. Because it seems to me like we relegate the crying out to about one week out of the 160, or one hour out of the 168 a week. And we somehow expect that the world is going to hear the cry of Jesus, the other 167. We got to quit giving the stone so much opportunity. You see, even if it's nothing than you being able to say, Jesus has forgiven me of my sins, we need to cry that out. And that gives Jesus glory in his mission. And that's the third thing. Look back at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. We've talked about this. We talked about it a couple of weeks back. We talked about how in Christ we have a new allegiance, how we have a new citizenship in heaven. So as a Christian, your passport may say USA, but that is not where your citizenship is. It's not of this world. You are a citizen of heaven. And, but by the way, you do need an American passport if you're going to travel. Because if you go to TSA and you're like, I'm a citizen of heaven, you are definitely getting detained, all right? That is going to happen. And please don't try it. It's just not, it's not worth it. But this is what Jesus says in verse 15. He says this about you. I do not ask that you, that God, take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one, right? And then look at verse 18. Look at 18. I want you to see it. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I want to read that one more time. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. One more time. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In the world. So let's, let's make sure that we're tracking with Jesus here, okay? He doesn't want us removed from the world. He doesn't want to take us out and put us on an island. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want us to just evaporate up into heaven some, in some way. He doesn't want that. He wants us to be here, okay? And he's asking the Father to protect us, to protect you and me from the evil one because why? He has sent us into the world. And how did he send us? This is critical. Jesus sends us into the world as the Father sent him into the world. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That's what he says. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, that's Matthew chapter 20. And, he, and the way he did that, okay, the way that Jesus did that was through the glory of the ordinary through the glory of the ordinary. The, the third way that, it, that we finish the sentence, the Son of Man came in, in, in Scripture, is to say that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That's how Jesus came. That's how He came into the world, and that's how He sends us into the world. It happens so often today that we want to, to sort of legislate the gospel 
and we want to vote it into office, that if we elect this person, then this agenda will happen, and then everybody will miraculously come to faith somehow and start living a Christian ethic. We want it to come in power. We want to make it the law so that nobody can, can fight back. We want the Great Commission to be about power and authority when the truth is that it's more about humility. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus didn't, didn't come into the world in a castle. He didn't come with a tower. Jesus did not come with his name plastered on the side of a really nice chariot or whatever. It's not how it worked. Jesus didn't show up in Jerusalem and say, the king is here. He actually showed up and the people wouldn't stop saying it for him. No. No, Jesus came in humility. He, he didn't come in a tower. He came in a manger. He didn't come on the back of a white horse. He came on a donkey. He came in humility came in humility. Yes, he worked miracles. Yes, he did tangible demonstration. John called them signs, right, to show the legitimacy of his claims. Jesus did these signs to prove that he was who he says he was. But as Jack Miller says, he, he sent him with all authority, but that authority was allied with total humiliation. You know, Jesus never appealed to earthly powers to justify his ministry. He did not barter with the Pharisees or Pontius Pilate to try and solidify his foundation. There were no backroom dealings with him, no summits. He came in humility, he walked in humility, and he brought glory to God in humility. Sometimes we drift over into thinking, and we all do this, that the ministry of the gospel is for the elite, that it's for the really smart the really talented, for those who are well-positioned. I've heard it said that our natural desire is for the work of the gospel ministry to be large, famous, and fast when most of the time the work of the gospel is small, overlooked, and slow. You see, the ministry of the gospel isn't for the elite. It's for the ordinary because it's for every single one of us. You have been sent into the world. And that's how Jesus gets the glory in his continuing ministry, not because you're awesome, but because he is. It's when we realize that we aren't the secret sauce in the deal. I heard someone say this week that in giving my life to Jesus, I'm not doing him any favors. He isn't lucky to have me on his team. I don't strengthen his hand at all. And that's so true. It's so true. We seem to think at times that, 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 we're, that we're one of the low number cards in the hand that Jesus has been dealt. That's not how it works with him. He doesn't have a better chance because he has us with him. Jesus has never been in trouble. It's that when we are with him, we are filled with, again, his supernatural power in the everyday and the mundane realities of life. How you handle a traffic stop. How you handle your kids when they don't act right. How you handle your boss when he's grumpy all the time. How you handle life in general is a testament to who Jesus is in your life. What Jesus proves in his people and in his ministry is that he can accomplish his supernatural redemption through the weakest, most timid, and most inarticulate fellow that the world could ever produce. And I know that because I'm standing here. Jesus is sending you. He's sending you with his spirit. He's empowering you with his spirit to accomplish his will for his glory. 
you know, back around Christmas 2017, uh, everybody, and I mean everyone, was telling us, our family, about this incredible movie that we had to go see. It was this incredible story with incredible music about all sorts of incredible people. And they, and they were right, man. Okay, the, we saw it. Hugh Jackman sang and danced his little happy bottom off for everybody. There was so much excitement around the greatest showman, even though the vast majority of that is based far more on fantasy than reality. You have to go see this. It's incredible. We had hundreds of people telling us to go and see that movie. Jesus offers us forgiveness of our sins. He takes our sin upon himself at the cross and he welcomes us into the family of God, reconciling us with the king of creation, the one who formed us, the one who sustains us, the one who, who's breathing for you right now, who's beating your heart for you right now. He brings us into a restored relationship with our creator. He took our chains, paid our debt, set us free and declares that in him, you and I, are children of the living God. Like that's who you and I are. That's better than the greatest showman. I beg you to live like that. I beg you to tell that story. I beg you to invite people into your story with Christ. It is a good, good story. And the best part, is that Wikipedia will never prove that it's untrue. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks, for being a God who reveals himself so that us with with these human minds can comprehend the supernatural reality of a God who speaks and creates. We are nothing but builders, Lord. We take the material that you've given us, we, we weave it together, we stack it on top of itself, we do all those things, but we need the raw material to make anything happen. You speak out of nothing and everything exists. And you humbled yourself to come and walk among us as one of us, emptying yourself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in that form, Lord, you, you humbled yourself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, you did that for us. And you look at us and you say, you are my child. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in here right now who doesn't know that, I pray that you would work in their heart to reveal that. That you would do the supernatural thing that I am incapable of doing, that nobody in here is capable of doing that you would save your people for your glory so that in the end, your prayer comes true because you get the glory. You get the honor because yours is already the victory. Lord, help us to walk in here as people who believe that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.